All right, let's get into God's Word. I hope you brought a Bible with you. There is some wonderful, wonderful deep teaching in the book of Proverbs, the 18th chapter in particular, and in fact, verse 24 of that chapter. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. Now, traditionally, I preach out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. But in order for us to see the depth of teaching contained in this verse, I want to switch translations just briefly this morning and go all the way back to the King James version of the Bible. So we're going to project Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, up on the screens for you from the King James version of the Bible. Take a look at how it reads. A man that hath friends must shew himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Now, in the circle of people that I spend time with, I don't know anybody that uses words like shoe and sticketh. So that doesn't really make a lot of sense given the normal conversation that I have. So we're going to use an interpretation tool called transliteration. Transliteration. And all that means is we are going to change some of the letters in two of the words that will not change the meaning. We are changing the letters so that they make more sense to us. Transliteration is an interpretation tool that has been used for years and years and years and years and years, and it is very, very effective. So when somebody says this is a transliterated word, you don't have to run from that. Just pay attention to it. All it means is that they have made it easier for us to understand by changing a few letters within the word, but never changing the meaning. So here's Proverbs 18, verse 24, in Phil's transliterated version from the King James. A man that has friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Now that's the transliterated form of it. And all we're really seeing is Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, teaching us things like this, that if you want friends... You must show yourself friendly. And once you develop deep friendships, you can actually develop relationships closer than family members. If you develop them the right way, you can develop such deep friendships that they will be stronger than that from brother to brother. That's the deep teaching of this verse. That's why I want you to see it the way it was written in the King James so that you could see the progression of it. But you could also see at the very beginning how relationships are established. If you want friends, you must show yourself friendly. Now certainly Solomon, the man who wrote these words, lived by what he wrote. He had a lot of relationships in his life. He had a lot of friends. The Bible would help us understand that as we look back through Solomon's life. It makes perfect sense to us that he would pen these words. But hundreds of years after Solomon wrote these and lived these words, the Apostle Paul seemed to pick it up as well. And he lived what Solomon taught. Let me show you why I believe that. Let's go to the book of Philippians. We're going to leave the Old Testament and go to the New. Philippians chapter 1. For the next several weeks, we're going to spend time in this wonderful, short little book that is all about the joy of the Christian life. I'm looking forward to this study with you, but we're going to start it today. Pay close attention to how it begins. You're going to see who the author of the book is. Verse 1, 
Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, there's the two guys who wrote the book. As interesting and as intriguing as that might be, I want you to pay close attention to who receives the book. Who are the recipients? Who are they writing to? And what you're going to see very quickly is a relationship. It is a relationship. Join me halfway through verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see the depth of the relationship, the way Paul is speaking to people with a personal passion? These are not folks that he has never met. These are people that he has developed friendships with. Have you ever wondered what it takes to actually develop friendships, deep relationships? You may not have. You may have never really spent any time thinking about that, or you may be in the the other camp that has spent a lot of time thinking about it because building relationships and developing friendships has not always come easy for you. So you've thought a ton about it. But if you're in that first camp of people that haven't really thought about it, please know that there are others that have. Now, for most of us, when we are very young, very small, we can develop lifetime friendships through one play date. Just by proximity on a playground, we can develop a friendship that will last all of our lives. But as we get older and we move into adulthood, it's not always like that. In fact, the development of friendships and deep relationships can be very difficult and very hard to make happen. So when I said that there's people that have thought about this, what I really mean is there's people that have invested their lives in studying this. In particular, in 2018, a fellow named Jeffrey Hall, who is a professor of communications at the University of Kansas, did a study on the development of friendships and what it takes to pull that off. His findings are quite intriguing, beginning with the first and most prominent revelation that hit him and his team of researchers. Take a look. Just being around and talking to someone a lot doesn't equate to friendship. Even though we might believe it to be opposite of that, it isn't. Just because you spend time around people and you talk to them a lot, that does not ensure that they would really be counted as a friend or that a deep relationship has taken hold and developed between the two of you. In order to figure this out, what Mr. Hall did was take two different groups of people that were in unique situations in life, and he studied the development of relationship in their particular scenario. The two groups of people were first, folks that had moved to a new city within the last six months and were going to develop relationships and friendships there. The second group were college freshmen. Now, they observed them, they paid attention to what they were doing, they followed them and tracked them until they had enough information to really arrive at a place where they could say that they had learned things about the development of deep relationship. Here are two of the things that they discovered, 
And these are really interesting. Number one, the average adult needs to spend 50 hours of time with a person to consider them a casual friend. The average adult has to spend at least 50 hours with someone and really get to know them before casual friendship kicks in. But look at number two. It takes approximately 200 hours to think of a person as a close friend. 200 hours. That is truly something. Now, you might think it doesn't take that long at all, or 200 hours comes very quickly with the people that I work around. I spend 40 hours a week with them. It only takes five, six weeks before I hit that 200 mark. But remember their first revelation. Just being around somebody and sharing a lot of words with them does not ensure friendship. In fact, Jeffrey Hall would say this about work relationships and ones like it. Relationships with our coworkers count as a closed system wherein members have little influence on who else is included in the group, which simply means you're at work to pay the bills. You're around those folks because you need to be around those folks. That's not a chosen group of friends. That's not a place where you would say, I'm going to really, really, truly connect with people. So he puts them in this closed system category and says, that doesn't apply. And if you look back over work history, yours or other people's, you could see why that is. Within the closed system, very few true friendships rise out of it. Not to say that never, but very few. And Jeffrey Hall would say, the friendships that do come out of it require another step or two. I really like this. Here you go. The participants who did activities outside of work with someone such as being invited to their home were more likely to develop deeper relationships with them. Something outside of the workplace and certainly something as intimate as inviting them into your home sets the groundwork for a relationship to begin, for a friendship to build. Now in all of their study, this is what they discovered. But here's what I saw as I went through their study. Once again, the Bible proves science. Not the other way around, science proving the Bible. The Bible proves science. Because you see, this exact thing becomes evident in the relationship that the Apostle Paul had with the church in Philippi. It all becomes evident. It's pretty cool the way that works. As we look at this scenario and what we're dealing with here and what we're talking about right now in the development of friendships, the particular sciences that the Bible comes along behind and proves are sciences like sociology and anthropology. To some extent, even psychology in the development of friendships. But it is in theology that we find a lot of the answers that we need for life and friendship. Now, let me show you what I mean. It all began for Paul and the church in Philippi with a vision. We'll go back to Acts chapter 18. Keep your finger there in Philippians chapter 1 because we'll be back. But let's go to Acts, I'm sorry, chapter 16, not 18. Acts chapter 16, we'll pick up in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. 
And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, Dr. Luke is the one who writes that. He's the historian that is traveling with Paul, and he's recording all of these things for us. And what a great thing to capture. Paul had one plan, but God, God permitted that plan, or didn't permit it. He prevented that plan from happening. And then in a vision, here's Paul with the Holy Spirit saying, come this way, and they end up going into Macedonia. It should not be of any surprise to you whatsoever, given what we're talking about today, that Philippi is in Macedonia. So that's how Paul got there. It all started with a vision. The Lord led him there. He was faithful and obedient and followed what God was asking him to do. Now catch what happens next. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. See how they went from knowing one another into a friendship? Lydia said, come to my house. Come to my house. And in that moment, things became personal for Paul and Lydia and her household and everyone else that would begin to make up the church in Philippi. All because Lydia said, come to my house. She showed herself friendly and invited the Apostle Paul there, and an eternal relationship began. When Luke says that they remained in Philippi for some days, that's three months. It's only about three months. That's how long they were in Philippi. But a forever relationship began, a close one, a friendship began between them. Now it is a relationship that has other components than just Lydia saying, come into my house. They had some shared experiences, really dramatic ones. Let's take a look. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. Now make sure you follow what's going on here. The spirit that was in this slave girl was not of God. So when she's walking around shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God and they know the way to salvation... That wasn't like a huge PA announcement saying, here, pay attention. There was a lot of sarcasm, demonic sarcasm. 
And I love how we get an insight into who the Apostle Paul is in this account because Paul got annoyed by it. And he turned around and rebuked the Spirit, and that was the end of it. Don't you like Paul? Boy, if you do, you're going to fall in love with him as we make our way through this. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. There's that tweak again, that involvement of the house. The jailer not only became a believer, but he wanted a relationship with Paul, so he took Paul and Silas and Luke to his house. And a relationship, a friendship began to build between them. It wasn't just one of commonality through Christ. It was one of deep connection. He cleaned his wounds. He took care of him in his home. And the church in Philippi was growing. You have people meeting at Lydia's house, and now you have people meeting at the jailer's house. And the church that met together in that place was growing numerically, and it was growing in depth because the Apostle Paul was part of it. Man, you can see why he loved these people. You really can. Can't you imagine that the last part of that story about being in jail and singing psalms and praying through the night caused an earthquake that broke open the, the jail cells? That's the kind of thing that I picture being told for years and years and years around a campfire. When people got together, boy, you remember when Paul was in prison and they were praying and singing psalms and, and God got them out of prison by shaking the ground and the jail broke open and that's how they came out? That's campfire stories. That's relational stories. That's the kind of thing that you go back to. This is what God did through us. You might think that that is dramatic enough that the story ends right there, but don't make that mistake. It goes on. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, This is where you'll fall deeper in love with Paul. Listen to this. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. 
And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And I love this next verse. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So here's Paul saying, really, really, you beat us without a trial. We are uncondemned men. And oh, by the way, did I mention we're Roman citizens? That means you broke the law by treating us this way. And you just want us to ride off into the darkness quietly and secretly. I don't think so. It's going to require a little bit more. So we're going to stay right here in your jail until those magistrates come and do the right thing. So the magistrates came and they apologized and you heard all of that. And then they said, now, would you please leave? And Paul said, we'll leave, but not quite yet. We've got to go see our friends. So they went and visited Lydia. They went and visited and strengthened the brothers. Don't you love Paul? (laughs) That's a boldness that only comes through the Holy Spirit. Yep, you beat me with rods, you threw me in prison, and I have a, a means of getting out of here, but I'm not leaving quite yet because the Lord is with me. And he stayed, and he visited with them, and encouraged them, and then he left. When you put all of that together and you see how deep this relationship is, these words in Philippians 1 begin to make sense to us. We'll pick up in verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul wrote those words from a prison cell again. This one happened to be a Roman jail. It was during his first imprisonment between the years 60 and 62 A.D., Paul wrote four letters, particularly during that time, that are referred to as the epistle letters or the prison epistles. Either one of those titles works for him. The word epistle simply means letter or message. It's a personal conversation. That's why it's different than like the book of Romans is or the book of First and Second Corinthians. Those were written to a church, but they were instructional letters. The epistles are personal letters. There are four of them. Here they are up on the screen so you can see them. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They're known as the prison epistles. The first three are written to churches, to groups of people that Paul loved. The fourth one to Philemon was written to one man in particular. He had a deep relationship with that man. He would refer to him as his son in the faith. It was a close, connected relationship through the gospel. Paul had a partnership with the gospel with all of those churches, and he also had it with Philemon and with other people. It was a partnership in the gospel. Now, you have to know, because of the gospel, Paul made a lot of enemies. But because of the gospel, he also made a lot of friends. And those friendships will last forever, literally forever, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they were bound together through that gospel. It's a deep connection, a deep connection. Now, while we have the hood up on this relationship, 
Let's just take a bit of a closer look in Philippians chapter 1. Picking up now in verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you hear the relationship? Do you hear the depth in it? If you haven't, then pay close attention to the word yearn. Paul says he yearns for them. Have you ever yearned for anything? Maybe like me, you're not really sure what it means to yearn, so let me help you out. Here's a definition of it from dictionary.com. Yearn, long, hanker, pine, all mean to feel a powerful desire for something. Yearn stresses the depth and passion of a desire. Now, yearn is still kind of one of those curious words, so let's just pay attention to long, hanker, and pine. Those make a lot of sense to me. I, I can wrap my mind around those. I have longed for hunting season to begin. In fact, I'm in that mode right now. I'm longing for hunting season to begin. Brian, you know what I'm talking about? Longing for hunting season. A lot of you know what we're talking about. Well, then you got hanker. Hanker's kind of a fun word. Frank, you're part of the country where you grew up. People had hankerings all the time, didn't they? All right, right now, I can tell you, I've got a hankering for a piece of peach pie. And by the way, there's not one peach pie out at the dessert auction. Not one piece of peach pie. I got a hankering for peach pie. Every year in August, my wife will make a peach pie for me because that's when peaches are in season. So she makes a peach pie for me. I got a hankering for it. You ever pined for anything? I can say that I, I pine to go into the, the backcountry of the Bob Marshall. I have a pining for that. But yearning, yearning is different. It stresses the depth and passion of a desire. The only way that I can apply the word yearn is in my relationship with my wife. When we are away from one another, separated for a period of time, maybe she's gone back to Kansas to visit family or I'm gone hunting or, or she was on a missions trip to Cambodia a couple years ago. I was gone to Nicaragua. During those times, there was a yearning for one another, a longing to be back together. The yearning happened because of separation. That's why the Oxford Dictionary, as it defines yearning, uses it in that type of an application like this. To have an intense feeling of longing for something, typically something that one has lost or been separated from. Paul is separated from the church in Philippi, and he is yearning for them. But his yearning is, is so deep, it's actually spiritual. He is longing for them not only to know Christ, but to grow in that relationship until, by his own words, they are filled with the fruit of that relationship. You know what that fruit is? It isn't a secret. It's not a mystery. It's found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. So Paul's saying, I have such a strong yearning for you that I want you to know Christ, and I want you to grow to a place in that relationship where you are picking fruit out of God's orchard. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I want all of those to be a part of your life as you grow in righteousness. That's the relationship he has with them. It isn't that he just wants them to know Jesus. 
He wants them to know Jesus and to grow in Jesus and to love Him more and more every day until the fruit of knowing Jesus is evident and visible and tangible in their lives. That's a deep yearning for someone. That's the depth of a relationship. When you long for somebody, you yearn for somebody to know Jesus and to know Him fully. That's who Paul was writing to. And you might think, I I don't know if I have those types of relationships. I yearn for some people, but I don't know that I yearn for that. Well, if you go through Philippians chapter 1, just the first 11 verses, you can find a way of determining how deep your relationship is. It is simply by looking at how the Apostle Paul defines the relationship that he has with these folks that he's writing to. There's three different ways. Starts in verse 3. Take a look again with me. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When he says, in all my remembrance, what he's really saying is, I have you in my mind. I have you in my mind. I think about you often. Now, there's a lot of people that you might think about often. You have them in your mind. But can you take it even further, like he did in verse 8? For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. When he says that, he's saying, not only do I have you in my mind, I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. I think about you often, and I yearn for you to know deeper things. That comes from the heart. Then there's this third one. It's found back up here in verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul says, I have you in my prayers. When you can say that you have someone in your mind and in your heart and in your prayers, you've got a pretty good indication of a deep relationship, of a close connection. You may be able to say, I think about this person often, casual friendship. You may even be able to say, I have them in my heart, and that might only be about your family members. But when you can say that you have somebody in your mind and in your heart and in your prayers... You're a long ways down the trail of saying, I have a strong relationship with these folks. That's the type of relationship Paul has with the church in Philippi. He showed himself friendly and they reciprocated and it grew. And it became something wonderful that you'll see in this book as we make our way through it. It's not just wonderful for them, it's wonderful even for us. As you study the Bible, you find out that we are designed for relationship. We are designed for relationship. All the way back in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning, God, when Adam was the only one walking on the earth, God looked at him and said, it's not good for man to be alone. But Josh Turner, the country musician, in a wonderful little devotion book that he wrote, took that just a, a little bit deeper. He made this statement. God told Adam that it's not good for man to be alone. What we've learned since then is it's also not good for man to be a loner. That's true. We are designed for relationship. Philippians will show us what it looks like. So I pray that you will keep bringing your Bible with you and you'll take a look at this. And hopefully there'll be some things that will help you look deeper at your relationships. I'm going to ask you to 
stand with me and we're going to offer an invitation like we do every week. And of course, that is an invitation for you if you would like to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. There's people here to talk to you about that. I know that sounds kind of heady to people if you didn't grow up in the church, personal Lord and Savior. Go talk to somebody about what that means. And if you want to place your life and your influence in the church, there's people to talk to you about church membership. Go talk to them about what that means. But this morning, as we were praying together, the guys that pray with me before first service, I think it was Deanie who brought up the fact that we had just been laughing about something. He said, you know, it's a good thing to know that we can come together and laugh, but there's a lot of folks that will come and laugh, but underneath the laughter, there's a lot of hurt. And there's a lot of pain and heavy burdens that people carry with them when they come into church on a Sunday morning. So we want to acknowledge that we know some of you are carrying massive burdens today. So know this, Jesus longs to carry those for you, and he has given us the relationship of the church to have people that will walk alongside us in the midst of those burdens. So if you want to leave those here, if you don't want to take them with you, you don't want to have to do it alone, then respond to this invitation. Go over to our prayer room. Tell Deanie, you need somebody to pray with you. Folks responded first service, pray that you will this service. Be bold to get rid of those things in the relationship of God's church.